Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the latest edition of Off the Cuff, my podcast. I'm Congressman Jared Huffman, and uh, I have just come off a two-week period in my district where we've had some fantastic town halls and other meetings uh, engaging with constituents. You know, since January, I've had a whole bunch of these, and we've had record crowds, 2,000 people uh, on a Monday at noon in Marin County, over 1,000 at several of them. And just last week, we went out to the Mendocino Coast, the little town of Fort Bragg, 700 people came out for an incredible town hall. So thanks to everybody who has brought such a positive energy and uh, all this active citizenship to these town halls. We will keep having them, and I'm looking forward to seeing you uh, back in the district sometime soon. Uh, and of course, we need now to, to channel that energy uh, as much as we can into forward progress here in Washington. Uh, People have been coming out because they're animated, they're afraid, they're worried about what's going on here in Washington, and uh, we're starting to have some wins, whether it's pushing back on wrong-headed health care proposals or uh, getting a clean government funding bill, which I think we're on the verge of doing instead of being leveraged into uh, accepting a whole bunch of bad partisan ideas uh, just to keep the government open. I think we've got some things going for us, so I want to keep people engaged, and I want to continue to try to channel all this energy into some positive outcomes. I'm thrilled to have South Carolina Congressman Mark Sanford as my guest this week, and uh, he represents South Carolina's first district, serves on the Committee of Oversight and Government Reform, and also with me uh, on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Mark began his career with three terms in Congress uh, that ended in 2001, and shortly after that, he became governor of South Carolina, served there until 2010. Uh, Governor Sanford was one of the bright stars in the Republican Party. Uh, Mark, you attracted a lot of businesses and jobs to your state while you were governor. Uh, The economy was doing well, and a lot of people talked about you as a presidential candidate. I remember that. That was not to be, of course. Uh, He walked away from the governor's seat in a story that made national news. Many of you will remember those events. I'm not going to rehash it here, but I will say that most political pundits assumed Mark Sanford's political career was over at that point, and he proved them wrong by returning to his former seat in Congress in a 2013 special election. He's been my colleague here ever since. Uh, More than that, though, Uh, Mark has staked out his own leadership role in ways that often defy partisan politics or stereotypes, and we'll talk about some of that today. So, Mark Sanford, welcome to Off the Cuff, my podcast. How was my introduction? Uh, For the most part, correct. You know, it's actually urban legend that I walked away from the governorship. Uh, A lot of people believe that. You Uh, served it out. I served it out, Okay. I actually, uh, I wouldn't say it was the most pleasant last year and a half of my life, Um, uh, there was a lot of pain there. Uh, there was a lot of introspection there. But yeah, finished up the last year and a half. And oddly enough, it proved to be one of our most successful legislative terms because, as you well know in politics, uh, a number of folks thought I was going to try and run for president or whatever. 
And so they didn't want to give me any more merit badges. Okay. And when it became more than abundantly clear that I was not running for president. You were not a political yeah, threat Yeah, not a political threat. <laughs> they said, by all means, let's let this stuff roll. And so oddly enough, it's the last thing in the world you would have thought, we had one of our most legislative, uh, productive legislative terms in my last year. Wow. Well, as, uh, as representatives in Congress, it's obviously our job to know all about our districts, serve their interests. I am not an expert on South Carolina. In fact, I will confess to you, it's one of maybe two or three states I haven't visited. I'm uh, embarrassed to admit. But I hope you can tell me a little bit about, um, I think they call it the low country, mm -hmm. and uh, this beautiful city of uh, Charleston that you represent. What's so special about it? Why do you like representing it? It's the San Francisco of the, the East Coast. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so, or maybe San Francisco is the Charleston of the West Coast. <laughs> nice. um, and and I, I, would, I would suspect that there's a lot of similarity between your district and mine in that there's just raw geographic beauty mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to where we both happen to live and where our constituents have chosen to make home. Um, I, I took a drive with my oldest son a couple summers ago, and we drove down the West Coast, and uh, your district stands out for just its raw magnificence. I think that when people talk about the low country of South Carolina, they talk about, oh my goodness, look at this. This just uh, oozes with uh, character and with natural beauty. Well, I've got to get out there and visit. You are uh, my first Republican guest on my podcast. And one reason I'm really excited to have you is to challenge the expectations of some people out there who probably uh, assume that you and I are just polar opposites. We have nothing to even talk about. We represent opposite coasts. Mm -hmm. You're a conservative Republican from the heart of the South. I'm a liberal Democrat from Northern California. Uh, there's a lot of folks out there who probably just assume uh, that we come here and fight with each other mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, but in fact, we get along just fine. So how do we explain that to uh, the people out there who uh, think that we should be fighting with each other? That the Founding Fathers knew what they were doing. That there's an intrinsic beauty to the way that they set the system up. And so if you look at the floor of the House of Representatives, and I were to take a snapshot yesterday, and I was to compare it with a snapshot when I first came to Congress in 1994, and they were to compare it with a snapshot back in the 1800s, the snapshots would look eerily similar because it's an amazingly human institution that uh, forces people of all different stripes and a whole lot of different perspectives together and their conversation begins. And as conversation begins, uh, if it's real conversation, you begin to pick up on not what we have apart but frankly what we've got in common uh, and as fellow Americans, at the end of the day, we've got a lot more in common than we have apart. Well, I agree with you, and I get that, as between you and me. There certainly um, are some, also some folks in this institution who yeah. don't want it to be a constructive friction, don't want to have that kind of uh, coming together. Mm -hmm. um, how, do we, how do we overcome that? Um, little, one relationship at a time. Mm -hmm. I mean, in other words, I, I think that what builds bridges ultimately is, is a, a touch of understanding and a touch of humility. Uh, the humility that says sort of the Irish prayer of God grant me the wisdom to fight the things I can change, leave alone the things I can, and hopefully the wisdom to know the difference. And, and, and so a, a little bit of humility that says I don't know it all. And you know there may be value whether I agree or I disagree 
to hearing another person's perspective. So I think that's part of it. And uh, at times, humility is in short supply <laughs> in any of the major institutions in, 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 in our country or, frankly, around the world. And um, I think that the other part is, is, again, building bridges one step at a time. You can't, you know, the old saying is, you know, you, you, you can't solve the world's problem until you first solve the neighborhood's problems. And, and, and so I, I think that, you know, visits as we've had in the gym, we happen to work out about yep. the same time. We have the same uh, cycle. Uh, or causes some, you know, conversation that leads to, hey, how, how can we find a, a way to work together to, in essence, prove to folks on both coasts that, no, this place isn't as dysfunctional as the media times likes to suggest. And now I know we both represent San Francisco, so... Exactly, yeah. Of sorts, of sorts. <laughs> of sorts. Of sorts. Um, or so, Charleston. Or Charleston, Charleston. Yeah. that's right. Uh, you went through, uh, obviously, a brutal, painful experience, uh, personally and politically, as governor of South Carolina. What brought you back into politics? Um, you know, chance, uh, fate, uh, uh, Randomness or God's will—I don't know. You, you could put it on any of those, depending on one's uh, faith perspective or or, 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 or lack thereof. Um, so what I would say is, uh, it wouldn't have taken a rocket scientist to believe that, as you correctly pointed out, that you know politics was over for me. Um, but I was in—I was I'd gone back to commercial real estate, which is what mm-hmm. I used to do for a living, and I was in my office, and a guy walks in. And he said, you know, something that is that never happens in South Carolina is happening, and that is, you know, we carry our senators out in body bags. Uh, I mean, they just <laughs> die in office. Yep. And, and yet uh, Jim DeMitt was resigning, uh, which opened up uh, the first congressional district where I happened to serve uh, uh, back in the 90s. Uh, that set up the uh, gubernatorial appointment um, for the Senate seat. And, uh, and again, as I said, the left open the first district. Uh, and this guy says, you got to do this. I said, are you completely out of your mind? Um, I've, you know, I've been through the fire. I don't want to reopen yeah. the wounds. You, um, you knew yeah. what that would entail. Yeah. And, and, and yet from that little conversation, then the phone starts ringing with folks mm-hmm. who've been past the borders or whatever. And one thing leads to another, and, 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 and here we are. Yeah. Well, um, there is a partisan stereotype that I run into somewhere, uh, sometimes in California, that Republicans are this disciplined monolith, everybody's in lockstep on all the big issues, and that those who deviate from party orthodoxy are punished. Uh, and yet, you've been on the national news a lot lately, not for being a conformist, uh, but actually for charting your own course on a number of issues where you don't necessarily agree with Republican leadership. And just off the top of my head, I can Think about your call for Donald Trump to release his tax returns, uh, your opposing offshore drilling in your state, uh, opposing the AHCA, the Republican health care bill, and uh, even acknowledging climate change. Mm-hmm. And you haven't exactly been lockstep with Donald Trump on the border wall either. Sure. So um, nobody's going to mistake you for a liberal, but clearly you do your own thinking. What is it like to be a guy like Mark Sanford? inside a party where there must be a lot of pressure on you to toe the line on some of these issues? Well, I could turn the question around and ask you the same question in that, you know, I, I think each one of us has different areas wherein we believe based on promises that we made in running for office 
or in feedback that we've gotten since in office that we need to take a certain position. And so, for instance, on the tax return thing, like so many things that you'll be involved in or I'll be involved in, you sort of back your way into it. So, you know, I, I had the unusual perspective of being a two-term governor, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I'd been asked sometime back in the primary process, do you think the candidates ought to release their tax returns? And my answer was yes. Uh, that it wasn't ultimately about their tax returns, it was about a 50-year tradition and the importance of sustaining that tradition. And it was about down-ballot races, that if, if presidential candidates didn't release their returns, believe me, gubernatorial candidates wouldn't either. And, and, and so you take that position, then you know it turns out Donald Trump becomes the nominee. It's not like you're going to reverse yourself. You've already laid mm-hmm. out where you are. It's something you believe. And then but a lot of your colleagues have reversed themselves on this. Have they? I, I, yeah. I, I don't a lot know. of folks who used to say he should release them now say it's not a problem. Um, you, well, you I, I think it is a problem, but because of exactly what I just mentioned, both mm-hmm. with regard to tradition and down ballot implications. This ultimately is not about Donald Trump's tax returns. It's another data point in terms of transparency that I think is important for voters as they make a mm-hmm. final determination on who they think nom- that their nominee ought to be. Which obviously I, I strongly agree with you on, but uh, our president uh, is a guy who's obviously famous for lashing out at those who disagree with him uh, and calling for disclosure of his taxes, uh, opposing his health care bill, things like that probably haven't gone unnoticed. Uh, are you concerned about uh, his temper, about his tweet storms, about any kind of retaliation uh, in your direction? No, he said as much. He said the, uh, Mick Mulvaney, who's now the OMB director and a fellow South Carolinian, to say, look, I hope you vote against the health care bill uh, because uh, I want to run somebody against you in a primary. And, and you know, that doesn't make one's day with the President of the United States the same, something like that. But um, I, I think it's important, again, I, I think that going back to your earlier question mm-hmm. about blowing myself as, up as governor is there is a degree of freeing that comes with well, I was going to ask you with, about that. Um, sort of political decimation. Yeah. Um, Having it, lost it all once, are you a little less intimidated in these situations? Yeah, you know, anybody who's been through a near-death experience says, okay, I guess, you know, they talk about the White Tunnel and all those different <laughs> things they talk about, uh, which I'm not in a rush to, 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 to yeah. check out, but they, they, they're, they seem to be no longer afraid of death. That seems to be a commonality with all these folks. And so I would just say, once you've already been dead, you, you, you're not afraid of being dead. And, and I've been there. And, um, and so, I, 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 you know, as you do, and I know you, you, you're as equally as conscientious about your votes and the way you approach things, based on our different conversations, uh, you know, you try and take it one day at a time, and that's about all you can do in life. Is Congress different this time around than it was, uh, gosh, almost a decade before when you were here the first time? Yes and no. So the human component to the Congress not changed one Mm -hmm. other. The conversations you see taking place on the floor uh, or in committee, um, very much the same. What's different is the advent of more media choices in the way that people communicate with people back home. And what it's done is to, to, to create a greater divide, or at least the perception of a greater divide. Uh, and so if I want to have a good day, I'm not going on Rachel Maddow's show. And if you want to have mm-hmm. a good day, you're not going on Hannity. And, 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 and so what that does is it pulls people to either extreme 
in, in the way that they communicate with folks based on, frankly, a, a, a media platform that at times gets a little bit extreme. Yeah, we do have a lot of colleagues with sharp elbows are uh, uh, positioning for those media slots uh, mm -hmm. all the time, and, and that doesn't help things sometimes. Well, they look for the loudest voice or the, or the most extreme voice. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that get picked up and oftentimes get coverage. So I'm impressed uh, with the way you've been doing town halls. Mm -hmm. And uh, town halls are in the news a lot these days. I've been doing them up and down my district. and. Yeah, for me it's great. Uh, there's there's a lot of love and support in the room, and there's Don't a lot of Don't <laughs> a lot of people coming out. Uh, but a lot of uh, our Republican colleagues are shying away from town halls. Some of them are having some pretty rough rides uh, from their constituents. There, you have done I think eight of these since November. Correct. And uh, from the footage I've seen, even the people there who disagree with your politics seem to give you a lot of credit for showing up for having a respectful conversation with your constituents, for even disagreeing but not being disagreeable. Yeah. What is your sense of uh, the temperature uh, in your district, and why do you think it's important to keep doing these town halls, even when a lot of folks think they're not very comfortable? Um, comfort doesn't equal productivity. Um, I, 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 I think we all at times want to stay in a comfort zone just because it's comfortable, but that doesn't mean we're getting anything done. I think that they have been of enormous value because I think you probably learn a lot more from the folks that disagree with you than the folks that agree with you. Uh, it, it's a chance to learn, it's a chance to hear. Um, I think that there is more political energy now than at any point I can remember during my entire time in politics. And that includes uh, the so-called Revolution '94 includes mm -hmm. the Tea Party movement. People are really keyed up, um, and I think that Republicans need to stop and take a look. Uh, folks are sending a memo, and it's a really loud and clear one. Uh, people are concerned not just about their health care; they're concerned about the tenor of the way conversations are taking place uh, here on Capitol Hill and within the White House. Um, they're concerned about their families and what comes next. Um, it, at many levels, they're frightened. And um, so I would just say um, what I have observed and seen is people um, really, really fired up. And, and that political energy is going to go somewhere here for the next couple of years. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to ask you just briefly about the border wall because we're talking a lot about it mm -hmm. once again. Uh, obviously, President Trump promised a physical wall, a big, huge, continuous wall across the southern border. He promised repeatedly that Mexico would pay for it. Um, did you ever believe those promises? Um, that one, yes. I, 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 not the Mexico part, uh, okay. but that he was committed to wall, yes. Um, I think that on the Republican side right now, people have been, frankly frightened and concerned by the degree to which he seemed to say, okay, uh, to, to not, you know, typically, if it's a major, major promise, uh, a food fight ensues, and at least there's a degree of skirmish prior to, uh, you know, see our vote that will, uh, you know, will take, have taken... Sometime today, yeah, perhaps, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, later yeah, next yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, I've always believed he was quite serious. But the Mexico paying but for the Mexico it, you never bought that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So do you think Congress is going to step up and pay for a continuous physical wall across the entire southern border? I don't know. I think there'll be a huge debate about that. I think that the preponderance of Republicans will be on the side of doing something more on that front. Um, I, I'll let you pick uh, where you think most Democrats will be. You can and, probably pick as well. Yeah, as yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, that's the beginning of a conversation. And in some form, I suspect something gets added, but we'll see what it looks like. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, so we've both got these beautiful coastal districts. And you have uh, shown a lot of leadership, in my view, uh, by opposing offshore drilling in South Carolina. Why is that? What, what does the coastal economy, tourism, fishing, all that it means, uh, why is that so important to your state? For the re same reason it's important to yours. I mean, uh, one, you know, just sort of in and of itself, call it quality of life, call it uh, a way of life. Uh, people choose to live uh, along my coast uh, because nothing against Kansas. I mean, I guess they grow great wheat there, but uh, it, it just does not have quite the allure. And, and so there's something just in and of itself, outside of economics, but just in sort of spiritual terms, where they say the zen of this place fits me. And, um, and then add to that, um, you know, uh, the number of folks that want to come, and as my son and I did as we drove down your coast, right. uh, to, to check it out. That's a huge economic engine, and add to that, you know, a lot of the different trades that go with coastal life, and you, you begin to have uh, a robust, uh, at times a little bit different, you know, they call Folly Beach the edge of the earth. Uh, some of the towns that I visited in your district seem like the edge of the earth, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. but there's a cool bohemian, oh, yeah. different kind of thing that goes with that, that attracts people who maybe beat to a little bit different drummer, but that different drummer is what makes the place so special. Yeah. And not worth putting it all at risk by uh, handing it over to the oil and gas folks. No, and that's been our big point, which is uh, even if you say you're offshore, you can't see it, the infrastructure that's required to take care of what occurs offshore begins to impact uh, that, that life that people have set up for themselves and those that they love. And our point was, we ought to have a hand in that. That shouldn't be decided by Washington, D.C., and I think that that's a legitimate viewpoint. So you have acknowledged climate change. You have expressed concern about sea level rise. You have to when you represent districts yeah. like ours, right? Yeah. Um, yet this is an issue. I'm on the Natural Resources Committee, and uh, it's hard for me to mention the words climate change or any of the other words that, that go along in that debate without... Um, some fairly hostile reactions from a lot of my friends across the aisle. What's it like inside your party as one of the handful of folks who've actually stepped out on this issue? And I really want to commend you for that, mm -hmm. by the way. I, I believe in Teddy Roosevelt's form of conservatism. That, 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 that to be conservative is to be conservative with more than just financial resources. That it applies to natural resources as well. And so I think the Republican Party right now is doing itself a real disservice in honoring the tradition of Teddy Roosevelt uh, and in, in sort of doing the three monkeys routine of I hear no evil, I speak no evil, I say no evil, it'll just go away. 
The problem is Mother Nature doesn't go yeah. away. And if you look at a district as low as mine, we're in at times a matter of inches can make the difference between that which is occupied by man and that which is occupied by Mother Nature. Um, it's a big deal. Uh, and, and interestingly, you know, I grew up on a farm about 50 miles south of Charleston. Over the course of my life, this isn't my you know, granddad's time, course of my life, I've seen areas go from being covered with pine trees to now being salt flats. Wow. And, and so this is not theoretical, it's not abstract, it's something I've observed in the here and now. You talk to old timers in Charleston and they'll talk about, you know, these new king, they call them king tides. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, all of a sudden, you got streets in Charleston flooded that never flooded before. Sometimes I mean, just in a normal high right, tide. Right, right, in a high yeah. tide. This ain't a hurricane or a storm surge. Yeah. This is just a high tide. And so, you know, it's something that I, I, I think that in terms of, uh, of economic consequence, in terms of environmental consequence, and in terms of impacting people's days, uh, you know, the, 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 their, their lifestyle, their, their homestead. And what we owe to the real. next generation right. as well. Right. Well, I really do commend you for that. Um, do you think we're going to have some real visible climate champions on the Republican side anytime soon? Do you see the ingredients or the, the beginnings of that possibility? Yeah, I mean, I just mentioned, you know, Carlos Cobello. Uh, yeah. You know, he cares deeply. He happens to represent Miami, so it's a similar yeah. low district to, to one like mine. Uh, or some of the others in the delegation have really begun to speak up and I think lead on this issue. Uh, I think at least Stefanik is beginning to make some noise. I mean, there are a number of different folks on the Republican side that are beginning to acknowledge the obvious. Those are two of the younger members of your uh, conference, right? Yeah. So maybe no coincidence on that. I think you're right there. Yeah. So we've covered some potentially divisive subjects. We're, we're still talking perfectly nicely to each other, but here's a really delicate one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I am the guy who authored the amendment to ban sales of the Confederate battle flag in our national parks and to end the practice of allowing displays of, the, of that symbol in national cemeteries. Mm -hmm. uh, you were the governor of the state where that flag flew over the Capitol until just a few years ago. Now I wouldn't expect us to agree uh, <clears throat> on these issues, but I want to give you a compliment because uh, I got so much hate mail and threats and everything else from the South when I authored mm -hmm. that amendment. I did it two years in a row. Um, and yet, when I read your statement on why you voted, you voted against my amendment, mm -hmm. but when I read your statement about why you voted against it, it was unlike a lot of the other statements by folks who opposed my amendment. Um, you didn't attack or impugn my motives. Uh, it was not defiant or combative. It wasn't partisan. It didn't even seem political. It was more philosophical. Uh, you acknowledged how hurtful and hateful this symbol is for a lot of Americans. Uh, I did disagree with your ultimate conclusion, but uh, look, I found your statement reflective, thoughtful, and even conciliatory. How did you arrive at your position uh, on this issue, and why didn't you just attack me like all the rest of my detractors on this? Well, I did with folks back home. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I, I um, you know, I, I, I think that... Um, you know, I, I love my brothers and my sister, but I don't agree with them all the time. Um, but I, I, I think it goes back to just the seasoning that comes with life of, of recognizing and accepting the fact that there can be positions and views that are quite different than your own. But, you know, part of our shared humanity is accepting the fact that there are differences. 
Um, and, and so for me, I mean, at the end of the day, issues are quite apart from that which we share, which is we're all on this journey called life. Uh, we're all doing as best we can. Um, there's some exceptions out there, and there are, you know, penal colonies across this country. And, and uh, I mean, there are some bad actors, no doubt about it. But by and large, most of the folks you run into in life are trying as best they can. And so what you say is, okay, you have a different perspective than I. I think our perspectives at times are driven by where we start in life and at times our geography and those we surround ourselves with. And, and so, you know, for me back home, a lot of folks, um, it, it, um, you know, their great grandfather died in some battle in, in, in you know, the right. tide of the Confederacy. And it's for them not about what many people see when they see the Stars and Stripes, but about memorializing their great grandfather's death. And so, again, based on your geography, based on the experiences that you've had, based on your own genealogy even, you can end up with very different perspectives on these things, but I think it's simply important to do what our mothers told us to do a long time ago, which is to say, okay, hear the other person's perspective, and even if you disagree with it, listen to it. Uh, and it's also urban legend. Everybody thinks that the battle flag flew over the, 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 the dome. Uh, it did not. Another place on the Capitol grounds. It was grounds, another right? place yeah. on the Capitol grounds, right. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's an important clarification. Yeah. Well, uh, Mark, we're, we're not going to change each other's politics, uh, but would you agree with me that by treating each other with respect and civility, having conversations like we've had this morning, uh, we can help improve the way Democrats and Republicans work with each other, maybe challenge each other to think more broadly, understand each other's perspectives, and occasionally find some areas of agreement that we might have otherwise missed? Totally. Totally. I mean, you think about the workplace where most folks spend the bulk of their lives, you know, at least daytime lives, you know, their job mates are not put in place based on Republican or Democratic politics, they're put in place based on getting a job done. And so, you know, we're to try and iron out as best as we can some really complex issues that confront our society and, and this country. And in getting our job done, I think it's imperative that we listen to each other's perspective and iron those differences out as best we can. Um, I think that one of the things that I've been so impressed about you on is your ability to do just that, um, uh, to, to look for ways of forging a relationship, whether it's with me or a whole host of other folks that I've seen you do uh, this with, that I think serves your district awfully well, the people that you represent awfully well, and ultimately this larger tradition that our founding fathers set up. Well, back at you. Now tell me one place in your district that's off the beaten path that my constituents should visit. That's a tough one. I, I don't even know where, but what I would say is uh, the Ace Basin. Um, it's the confluence of three rivers that flow into the Atlantic. What's it called? The Ace Basin. Ace Basin. The Ashibu, okay. uh -huh. and Edisto Rivers uh, come together to, to form the Ace Basin. And there, about uh, 250,000 acres have been preserved, either through private land easement, uh, state or federal involvement. And it's a fairly um, hallowed place, uh, given uh, its natural beauty, uh, given its history in that there are these tremendous dikes that were built by slaves uh, hundreds of years ago that still stand sort of as relics to to just the raw 
uh, horsepower of, 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 of what took place and the toil that, that created these dikes. Um, and um, it, it's an amazingly beautiful corner of, of my district and, and worth a visit. All right. Well, I'm going to recommend that you come out, since you mentioned the bohemian lifestyle of the yeah. coast. There's no more bohemian and uh, quirky and great place than uh, Bolinas in West Marin County. So you got to come see Bolinas, but there are no signs to find it. You know, you have to talk to me and I'll tell you how to get there. I can't wait. I'm in. Field <laughs> trip. Here we go. Anything else you want the, the people of the 2nd Congressional District in California to know? As much as people at times feel like there's no hope in our present political system, uh, I would remind them of what Churchill said so many years ago. He is, his, his, his observation was that the beauty of the American political system was that it always did the right thing, comma, after it had exhausted every other possible <laughs> remedy. And, and we're in one of those moments. Um, some of the way that the president handles himself and, 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 and pushes things forward is at odds with every lesson that my grandfather or father ever taught me about uh, a more humble or gentle approach. And those lessons for me were magnified um, given the events of my life mm -hmm. in 2009 and what followed. And, and so at times you sort of recoil saying, oh my goodness, where are we? But what I, I, again, take solace in is the fact that the American political system is much bigger than any man or woman mm -hmm. in it. And at the end of the day, if we all keep pushing, I think it ends, to it ends with constructive results. I like the sound of that. Well, thank you, Mark Sanford, for being my guest. Thanks my for being a great colleague. Really appreciate you being here. All the way around. Thanks. All right. We've got a, a question from a constituent that I am now going to answer. Uh, Pam asks, how do we fight this ridiculous border wall? That's a great question. I've been getting it a lot lately. And I think there's several ways to do it. First of all, um, I've got to fight it here in Congress. And so when Donald Trump proposed that uh, he would only support a government funding bill if it included a down payment on this wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for, remember that little detail? Um, I said, hell no. Uh, most of my colleagues said, hell no. Even a lot of Republicans uh, weren't feeling very good about that. And it didn't take long for him to realize that was a non-starter. So the border wall is not going to be in the government funding bill right now. And uh, we'll probably have this fight again in the fall when it comes to next year's government funding bill. That'll, that'll have to be resolved by the end of September. But I'm pretty confident that we can hold our ground on this. The public is with us. I think a lot of fiscal conservatives, uh, to the extent they still exist around here, are with us. Uh, the other fronts in this fight, of course, include the courts. And it's interesting that uh, my colleague Raul Grijalva and uh, an environmental group have sued to require a comprehensive environmental review before beginning any construction on this wall. That, if it's successful, and I think it very well could be, um, could delay this effort for years. There are some creative coalitions that are starting to form in opposition to this bad idea. Uh, when you see environmental groups who don't traditionally work on immigration issues leading the charge against this wall, uh, that tells you that you've got some creative working partners. But the real key is, is just changing the narrative, changing the public perception and public opinion on this issue. And if you look at the polls these days, 
this is just not what people want. Even most Republicans don't say that building a physical wall across our entire southern border uh, ought to be a top priority right now in our country. So uh, one thing this president cares about is ratings. We've seen that time and again. And if we can all keep speaking out and uh, voicing our opposition to this, we will change the public narrative, hopefully to the point that uh, he will see the light and realize this is just not going to happen. Uh, And then the last way, of course, we can oppose this are some of the creative uh, economic strategies that we're seeing. In California, for example, they're considering blacklisting government contractors who work on the border wall. So that's something we can do in our own communities, in our own states. We can make it Uh, toxic, frankly, for people to be even associated with this terrible idea. And the combination of all these various strategies, I think, uh, can go a long way towards stopping this. So thanks for the question. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cup with Jared Huffman.